The text today is from Acts 17, verses 16 through 36. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogues with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks and out in the marketplace day by day with others who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with Paul. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? And others said, he appears to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was speaking of the good news of Jesus and of resurrection from the dead. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are speaking of? You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we'd like to know what they mean. The Athenians and the foreigners who lived there did nothing but talk about and listen to new ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walk around and I carefully study your objects of worship, I discovered an altar with the inscription to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and of this I will present to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is Lord of heaven and earth and doesn't live in temples built by human hands. And he's not served by human hands as if he should have need of anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps Find him, reach out to him, though he's not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your very own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, if we are God's offspring, we ought not think of the divine being as gold or silver or stone, an image crafted by human skill and design. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent, for he set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man whom he has appointed. And he's given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Well, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul, and they believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. Good morning, everyone. Did you have a good Thanksgiving? Crazy Black Friday. What do they call Saturday after Thanksgiving? Anything? Rest? Something? (laughs) 
Hey, I'm glad you're here. Why don't you go ahead and open your Bibles with me to the text Donna just read for us, Acts 17. And if you need a Bible to use, you should find one available down in one of the uh, chair racks around you, Acts 17. If you're a guest today, just so you know what we're doing, we're in a series called Going Viral, and uh, it's a study of this ancient document that records how the early church and its message of, uh, the, of good news, of God's love and grace in Jesus, went, as we would say today, went viral, spreading very quickly from the streets of Jerusalem to the farthest reaches of the known world. Jesus said to his followers, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And that's what happens. The church in Jerusalem grows from a handful of believers to over 15,000 people, most of whom in the face of persecution leave the city and venture out into the surrounding region. And as they go, they embody the mission of Jesus, sharing the good news of God's grace, serving the physical and spiritual needs of people, and inviting into community those who were racially and culturally different. As a result, not only did Jewish men and women turn to Jesus, but Samaritans, uh, Africans, Greeks, Romans, Syrians, Asians, I mean, all of these people were spiritually transformed. Their lives were changed forever. Now, here in chapter 17, we pick up with the Apostle Paul in Athens, which uh, at the time was kind of considered the intellectual capital of the Greco-Roman world, and uh, not being one to miss an opportunity to speak or to shy away from a healthy religious, philosophical discussion, Paul finds himself at one point interacting with the cultural and academic elites of his day. And the manner in which he addresses them is nothing short of brilliant. Over the centuries, scholars have written volumes upon volumes on the speech that Paul gives, analyzing the, uh, the content, the logic, the structure, and I've only got about 25 minutes. So uh, with that in mind, what I want to do is, is offer sort of the Reiki overview uh, and then hit uh, some of the highlights of Paul's interaction with these Greek philosophers and intellectuals. So first, let's talk about the cultural context. As I already mentioned, Athens in the first century was essentially the cultural center uh, of the empire. It was the home of great art, theater, literature. Uh, it's where guys like Pericles, Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle once lived. And so the city carried, you know, kind of carried on their legacy in Paul's day, it, it remained a very impressive educational center. It had a huge uh, university. Uh, Athens was this, you know, it's kind of where all the intellectuals hung out. Um, it's where the philosophers philosophized. You know, it's where they shared their theories. It's it's where ideas were forged, ideas that set the course and the tone for Greco-Roman society. You know, for what people thought and how they lived. And Paul finds himself in the city, waiting for some friends to show up. He's waiting for Timothy and Silas. And as he's, as he's waiting, he ventures around town. And as he does, we're told Paul was greatly dis, uh, distressed to see that the city was full of idols. Uh, ancient historians record that there were some 30,000 of them. That's a lot of idols, you know, representing a myriad of gods and goddesses and all sorts of deities. And and seeing all this really troubled Paul. It troubled him on a, deep, on, a, on a deep level. And so not willing to waste the opportunity, he went and he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks. And those people were, those were Gentiles who believed in the God of Israel. But he didn't stop there. We're told that Paul also went out and reasoned in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. But just so you know, uh, in ancient Athens, the marketplace was not the lo local shopping mall where you could find von Maurer and uh, Crate and Barrel. Okay, very different idea of marketplace. The Greek term used is 
uh, agora, which basically refers to the city center, to the public square. It's where people would go to meet, to talk, to share information. I mean, keep in mind at the time, there were, there were a few written documents available to, to the average person. There really weren't any books. There were no newspapers, no magazines, no radio, no CNN. So where did, where did people get news and information? Well, they went to the agora, to the marketplace, to the city center. In fact, Luke, who was Greek himself, the author of the book, uh, a well-educated Greek, uh, he, has, he has a side note in verse 21. He says, he goes, yeah, all the Athenians and foreigners who live there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. So that's what, that's what they did. And they did it in the agora. It was the happening place. It's where people hung out and discussed news and art and theater, philosophy, literature. All topics were fair game. It was a place of public discourse. And Paul's going there reveals how he viewed Christianity not just as some private belief system that offers personal peace, but it was objective truth worthy of public discourse. And I love the fact that Paul doesn't sequester himself away in the synagogue, but he gets outside the walls of the synagogue, out into the, to the, to the, into the midst of the culture, into the thick of things, to talk to pagan Greeks about the good news of Jesus and the grace of God. And, and I want to note uh, Paul's approach in doing that because, uh, because we're told that he reasoned in the synagogue and he reasoned in the marketplace. And the Greek term we translate reasoned is the term dialegomai. Sound familiar? It's where we get our word dialogue. And uh, the term referred to the exchange of thoughts, the sharing of ideas. It wasn't just about going and spouting off your own opinions. Uh, but dialogue in the ancient Greek world, uh, in the ancient Greek sense, represented the Socratic method of interaction, which involved asking a lot of questions. In other words, Paul's approach wasn't just to you know, saunter into the marketplace and start preaching at the Athenians, telling them how wrong they all were. Instead, he goes and he asks questions. And he listens to opinions, and he clarifies ideas. And he tries to understand the premises of people's arguments and then challenge those premises in a respectful way. See, this wasn't a debate in the sense that we're familiar with debate, you know, where, where people uh, get a microphone, take the platform, and regurgitate talking points all in an effort to try to gain popularity. Uh, the term debate is found in the text, but the Greek term used literally means to fall in with someone. In other words, to fall in conversation with someone. That's what it means, to engage. And we in Christian circles today uh, tend to hear about and talk about cultural engagement. Well, this was it. I mean, in the truest sense, this was it. Because Paul goes to the very center of, of his culture to engage, to share ideas. It was a give and take uh, with those who believe differently. And as far as, as far as Paul was concerned, there's no, there's no hint of arrogance in his approach. He's not defensive. He's not accusatory. He's not condescending. He doesn't chastise or ridicule anyone. You know, ridicule is not an argument. We realize that, right? Ridicule is not an argument. You know, I often hear Christians ridicule those who believe differently. Ridicule atheists. Ridicule agnostics. Make, make jokes about them. That, that, listen, that's disrespectful, in my opinion. And it's not helpful. It's not helpful in conversation. 
As Christians, our conversations about people, our conversations with people who believe differently should always be respectful. Later in life, Paul writes to Christians in the church. He says, he goes, listen, conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace. Here's my Ray K translation. When dialoguing with those who think differently, don't be an arrogant, obnoxious, defensive, sarcastic, condescending, impertinent blowhard. Uh, that's the Greek. That's what the Greek reads right there. <laughs> Don't, don't be that guy. Don't be that girl. Don't be that person. It's not helpful. It actually achieves the opposite of what we want. It taints the message of God's grace. I mean, Paul was incredibly gracious in his interaction with people. In fact, at one point, he, he affirms the religious nature of the Athenians. So in short, he engages in respectful dialogue, a give and take of ideas, of asking questions, sharing thoughts and opinions. Now, not all the Athenians were equally respectful. Because apparently, uh, there was a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers there in the marketplace, and they began to engage with Paul. Some of them asked, you know, what is this babbler trying to say? And the Greek term for babbler is an interesting one. It was a term used for a loud a uh, squawking, seed-picking bird. <laughs> that kind of thing. I've been working on that bird imitation. <laughs> that's good. But that's what the word meant. Um, but apparently Greek philosophers like to use it at times to describe someone they felt just went around picking up various ideas from uh, other people and places and then spouting off their foolishness to whoever would listen. Basically, it was an insult. <laughs> It was an insult. They were mocking Paul because he was talking about this, this good news of, of Jesus and, and his resurrection, which, which seemed like nonsense to them. So some of the cultural elites ridiculed Paul and his message. But, but here, you know, here's the great historical irony to that. Within the next 200 years, Christianity would sweep through the Greco-Roman uh, culture and become the dominant cultural idea where pretty much every intelligent person would believe and embrace the truth of Jesus. The tide would turn. But at this point, at least some of the Greek philosophers here in the marketplace mocked Paul and what he was saying. You know, who were these philosophers? Well, some were Epicurean philosophers, some were Stoic philosophers. What's the difference? Uh, well, um, in summary, basically, uh, the Epicureans held to a theory that the world and the gods were separated uh, they were a very long way away from each other. They were with little or no conversation, little or no communication. And so, you know, it's just best, to, they would say, it's just best to do your own thing, you know? Discover how to experience maximum pleasure in life because when you're dead, you're dead. That's it. You know, the meaning of life is to be happy. So do whatever it is that makes you happy, man. Anything goes. In a sense, they were the cultural relativists. The Stoics were more the moralists, they believed in man's potential goodness. You know, they, they believed a, a divine spirit rested within each human being, and, 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 and its power just had to be discovered and harnessed. And therefore, the meaning of life was, was to, to, to be good and to be noble and to be virtuous and to be courageous. Don't let anything get you down. You know, when you suffer, suck it up. No crying, be strong. But see, these philosophies although reasonable in theory to some, ultimately failed people. Because living however you want, at the end of the day, left people empty, lonely, 
with no sense of meaning or purpose to their lives or existence. And trying to be strong and noble and courageous, especially in the face of suffering, you know, practically just didn't work for most people. Now you realize we have, we have Epicureans and Stoics in our culture today. They're just not called that. Because we have people who believe that life is, is about doing whatever you want. Wherever you want, however you want. As long as it makes you happy, man, go for it. Because when you're dead, you're dead. We have others who believe uh, in the innate goodness of man and hold to moral absolutes, yet have no basis for those absolutes. And their, their best attempts at being good and virtuous fail, not to mention their stoicism crumbles when the inevitable pain and suffering of life hits. Here's the point. The thinking of people in the culture Paul was engaging was not that unlike the thinking of many in our culture today. And Paul's desire to engage with these, these men and women respectfully was motivated by what? It was motivated by his confidence in the truth, the truth of the good news of Jesus. Well, from the text, it seems that at least some of them in the marketplace, some of the philosophers were intrigued by what Paul was saying. I mean, I, you know, some called him a squawking seed picker, true. But others took him and brought him to the meeting of the Areopagus. Areopagus literally translated means rock or hill of Ares. And Ares was the Greek god of thunder, war. The Roman equivalent was the god Mars. So sometimes this place was called Mars Hill. It was basically a big, giant, bare marble rock in Athens. It's still there today. You can visit it. You can climb on it. Uh, in fact, uh, on the left, you see some stairs. The stairs leads down, lead down to the base. And in the, in, embedded in the rock is a plaque with Paul's speech on it. I mean, this is where it happened. This is where the city aristocrats met. The Council of the Areopagus, the leading intellectuals of the city, the elite of the elite. And Paul gets invited to address them. And they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting. You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we'd like to know what they mean. Now, were they serious? Or were some people bringing it up and saying, you got, you got to listen to this guy. <laughs> this guy is out there. And so were they bringing him for entertainment value? Who knows? But... Whatever the case, Paul gets to speak. And before we look at what he says, let me just point out that if, if Paul were in the synagogue speaking to Jewish people or God-fearing Gentiles, he'd have started off saying something like, um, the Messiah Jesus has come, just as our ancient prophets foretold. And then he would quote the Old Testament and he'd, he'd refer to the prophets and, and how Jesus fulfilled the Mosaic law. But here Paul doesn't do any of that. Which tells me, first, there is no one-size-fits-all gospel presentation. It also tells me that Paul wisely understood his cultural context and who these people were he was speaking to. Because he doesn't mention the Bible. He doesn't mention the Ten Commandments and nothing like that. Why? Because these people had no understanding of those things. Zero. Zilch. Nada. Nothing. They had no concept of that. They, they knew their Greek mythology. And they were religiously minded, but they knew nothing of the Hebrew scriptures, and therefore these scriptures held no authority to them. There's no basis of, of Paul's argument. You know, they didn't know the God of Israel. They didn't know any of this. And realizing that, Paul begins differently. He begins with a word of affirmation. He says, people of Athens, I see that in every way you're very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I found even an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Translation, Paul says, you guys are truly religious. I see that. 
That's great. You even worship a God you don't know. Man, I respect that. And by the way, uh, archaeologists have uncovered several of these ancient altars in Greece and in Rome, altars to unknown gods. There's one in Rome that reads, whether to a god or to a goddess. Now, why do they build these things? No one's sure, but it, it seems uh, that uh, as polytheists, as those who believed in many gods, they were kind of doing due diligence. You know, they were covering the bases, not wanting to overlook some deity who would then be upset because they weren't acknowledged. So they built these altars. And Paul says, I notice that you have an altar to an unknown god. He says, you, you are ignorant, and not ignorant in a, in, a, in a rude way. He didn't use the word that way. Sometimes we so call people ignorant. We mean, you know, we're not being very nice. He's simply saying, you're uninformed of the very thing you worship. And he says, this is what I'm going to proclaim to you, i.e., I'm going to tell you about this God you don't know. I mean, it was, it was a brilliant introduction. I, I, I'm convinced it's one that captured the attention of the entire group. Unfortunately, we don't have time to look at all the de at details of everything Paul says, but if you were to summarize it, really, his message to the Areopagus focused it focused on the greatness of this God, this unknown God, a God superior to all others. I mean, that's Paul's thesis here, right? I mean, he says this God, who, this God that you've built an altar to is the God who made the world and everything in it. He's the Lord of the heaven and earth. He's the God who doesn't live in temples built by human hands, and he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. In other words, he's saying this is the one true creator God who's dependent on nothing and no one. Paul says, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands, i.e., this creator God is sovereign over everything and everyone. Human history is under his watch and his control. You see what Paul was doing? He was presenting these religious Greeks with a God who was bigger, greater, more real, and more powerful than any deity they ever imagined. All of their deities were all broken up, and this, this deity over here, he, he took care of the sea, and this person took care of the agriculture. You know, th that's how they worked. And even more importantly, more importantly than that, the gods of the Greco-Roman culture were, well, they were petty. They were moody, prickly, greedy, sometimes shady deities egocentric gods who were always bickering and fighting with one another. Realistically, they were nothing more than projections of flawed human beings with a bit more power attached. And the goal for people was to appease these gods, to manipulate these deities, to get them to do what you wanted, to get them to give you what you wanted. They weren't worshipped for their innate beauty, goodness, justice, generosity, or loving kindness. Now, Paul says... Look, there is a God who is truly just and worthy of our worship, a God who created us, a God who loves us, a God who desires that we seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from any one of us. And ultimately, what Paul was doing for, for these intellectuals was he was appealing to their, uh, to their, to their intellect to the, and to their emotions. You know, uh, First, to their mind, basically, Paul, Paul says, look, I'm not going to prove to you this God exists. I'm going to prove you already know he exists. You sense it's true, which is why you've built altars to him. It's why your own poets have written about him. And then he quotes two famous Greek writers. He argues, your poets have said this about the God. In him we live and move and have our being. That's a quote from a poem, Kritika. 
written by 7th century B.C. Greek poet Epimenides. Then he quotes 3rd century B.C. writer Aratus from his poem Phenomena. He says, for we too are his offspring. And Paul was a pretty bright guy. He was pretty well read. And he appeals, he appeals to Greek art and literature to help make his case. He understood culture. And as, I think as Christians, we, we, should, we, should, we should be more like that. We should be the best read, most well-rounded people who can talk on any number of cultural topics, at least to a certain degree, who understand what's happening in the culture, what culture is saying. We need to meet, read more than just Christian books. We need to read the books of, of those who think differently so we understand what they're saying and thinking. Otherwise, you can't engage them. Otherwise, you're afraid to engage them. Paul was not. He says, your own poets write about this God. Clearly, he says, you have a deep sense he exists. You offer clues to it in your thinking, your behavior, your writing. Now, this is not unlike people today who, who say, for example, they say they don't believe in God and yet have an incredibly strong sense of morality, a sense of what is right and what is wrong, what is good and what is bad. Well, here's the thing. If there is no God and there is no transcendent truth, then on what basis do those folks believe what's right and what's wrong? How do they decide what's right and wrong? And some would say, well, it's through biological evolution. We've developed a sense of morality. You know, we have, as human beings, we have a collective understanding that love is good, uh, violence is bad. Our ancestors found out that loving people is way better to survive than the opposite, and that that genetic learning has been passed down, which is why we feel the way we do. So, as the argument goes, we don't, you don't need God to account for moral feelings. And that's true. You don't. But without God, there is no moral obligation, you see. I mean, just because you feel something is right doesn't mean you have to do it. Just with, you know what I'm saying? It, without, without God, without a supreme authority, right and wrong is really up for grabs. Feelings of, feelings of morality may exist, but absolute obligation to morality does not. Here's the point. Even those who say they don't believe in God today, on some level, have a sense of his divine presence. Uh, they have a sense of something, something transcendent, something beyond us exists. And we in the church, I think, need to learn uh, more about that and how to appeal to those folks and discuss that with them and challenge them in their thinking. That's what Paul did for the intellectuals of his day. He appeals to their, their, their sense of the divine, the God they didn't know, but, but sensed was out there. He also appealed to their emotions. He said, look, this great, powerful, sovereign creator wants a relationship with you, a personal relationship with you. He wants, he wants you to seek him and to find him He's near to you. He's near to all of us, Paul says. And everything that you have, he's given to you. Life, breath, everything he's given to you. You're his offspring. You're his children. Your poets acknowledge it. And then he says, therefore, since we are God's offspring, we shouldn't think the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. And it's at this point... 
uh, I'm guessing Paul began to realize his listeners were thinking to themselves, okay, dude, we hear what you're saying, but what other proof do you have for all of this? And anticipating the question, Paul says, For this God has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Translation. All this I'm telling you is true, Paul says. All of it's true. How do I know it's true? How do I know that this God exists? How do I know that this this God is all-powerful? The proof is in the miracle of resurrection. At that point, there's a shift in the conversation because the Greeks, especially the intellectuals, had strong opinions about life and death, primarily that once you're dead, you're dead. That, that was the general consensus. The ancient Greek tragedy writer Sophocles in his famous play Antigone celebrates the intellect and the creative abilities of human beings and speaks of them as clever beyond all dreams. Sophocles says, there's one thing, there's one thing we can't, we can't seem to overcome. There's only death that man cannot find an escape from. Human beings may master nature, we may master each other, we may sometimes even master ourselves, but we cannot master death. It's the one thing we can't figure out, we can't overcome. We can't escape it. And that's what the Greeks believed, which is why Paul gets the reaction he does from many of his listeners. He doesn't, I mean, he doesn't even get to mention Jesus' name. Because as soon as they, they heard about the resurrection of somebody from the dead, some of them sneered, and, and the dialogue gets shut down. And to a certain degree, that's not surprising, right? I mean, it's understandable. Because the claims of Jesus, the claims of Christianity, and especially the idea of Christ's resurrection from the dead is an outrageous and crazy one. But it's only crazy if it's not true. And the miracle of resurrection is only impossible if God does not exist. However, if true, then the miracle of resurrection proves the power and existence of this God. It proves Jesus' outrageous claims were true. It proves the good news of divine love and grace. And it destroys the possibility of superficial religiosity. And it demands, it demands our complete and total commitment. The resurrection changes the equation. And see, Paul, along with the other apostles and early believers, they knew it was true. They witnessed it. They saw it, which is why they lived the way they lived. It's why they they lived such faithful and courageous lives. They faced death fearlessly. It's why Paul was willing to put himself out there in the culture, face potential ridicule, if not out-and-out persecution, because he knew the gospel was true. And he knew people needed to hear it. And for us as Christians living in a culture that is remarkably similar to the first century, there's a lot we can learn from Paul. There's a lot we need to learn from him. We need to recognize the message of Christianity is not just a private matter. It is something worthy of public discourse because it's truly historic. It's good news for everybody. And we need to learn to respect those around us who think and believe differently. To understand what they think. And believe, to engage in healthy conversation. And sure, there may be times when we get ridiculed, but let's not get ridiculed because we're obnoxious. Our approach is always one of humility and grace. And our goal should be to try and understand what people believe, why, ask questions, get them to think, and always be ready to share the truth of Jesus with those who will listen. 
And here's the deal. Just like Paul, we should have realistic expectations that not everyone will respond in the same way. You know, the text says, as Paul shared the good news, some of them, some of the people sneered. Others said, we want to hear you again on the subject. And some of them became followers and believed. So here's my Reiki summary. When it comes to the message of Christianity, there will always be those who laugh and mock. There will always be those who procrastinate and avoid a decision. And there will always be some who will listen to the truth, embrace God's offer of grace, and put their faith in Christ. That's how it works. As Donnie mentioned earlier, and as most of you probably know, today marks the official start of the Christmas season. And uh, in a way, looking at this account of Paul in Athens, I think fits really well with the first day of Advent. Advent uh, comes from the Latin term adventus, meaning the arrival of. And I, I, think, I think this account fits really well with the first day of Advent. Why? Well, because... Prior to everything he said and did, we're told Paul was greatly distressed, right, to see Athens and its culture filled with idolatry. But he doesn't turn from the city in disgust, leaving its people with no hope of rescue. Mm -mm. Knowing that he'd be mocked, ridiculed, and rejected by many, Paul doesn't abandon his world. Instead, he plunges himself into the thick of it, into the mess of humanity, just like who? Just like Jesus. The Son of God who saw the idolatry in all of our hearts, and saw the sinfulness of our world, but didn't abandon us in disgust. Instead, out of love, plunged himself into the thick of it, into the mess where he was mocked and ridiculed and rejected and put to death, sacrificed for our sin, but raised again to life that we who believe might also live. And that good news news of God's love and grace in Jesus, eventually swept not just the city of Athens, not just Greco-Roman culture, it swept the globe and changed history forever. This Advent season, let us celebrate and proclaim the same good news to all who will listen. For the Savior of the world has come and graciously offers life to all who believe. Let's pray. Father, I pray as we, um, as we begin the Advent season today, we celebrate the arrival of one who would plunge himself into the mess of humanity for us, of God in the flesh come to rescue us and give us life. Not based on our good works, not based on just how wonderful we are, but despite our brokenness, he came for us. And this news of grace is indeed good. It's news our world desperately needs to hear. And I pray that we as the church, as your people this season, would willingly bring this news to the people in our own lives through the way that we live and the way that we engage in conversation Recognizing that some might mock us, some might mock the message, some might just show some interest but put off any kind of a decision, but there are others who will embrace this news of grace and believe in Jesus. And so may we as your people um, proclaim it um, and point people to him.
In his name we pray. Amen. As the Old Testament comes to a close with the words of the prophet Malachi, God's people are struggling to believe that God will be faithful to fulfill his promises. You see, there is no great nation of Israel as God had promised. There is no Messiah as God had promised. They had experienced exile. They had lived under the rule of many kings. And all the promises of God seemed like distant memories. As a result, the people became discouraged and their hearts began to disengage with God. In the act of worship, they began to simply go through the motions. And as a result, sin increased while belief in the faithfulness of God and anticipation that God would fulfill his promises decreased. God's final words to his people through the prophet Malachi are a bold call to repentance. And the declaration that if they don't turn to him, there will be impending judgment. And then silence. The Babylonian Talmud, a kind of commentary of sorts on Jewish scriptures, they write of these final words. They say that the words of Malachi were written and then the spirit of God departed. You see, for us, we open our Bibles and there's this page that exists between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And for us, it's simply a page. But for God, this, this page for God's people represented 400 years. 400 years where there was no word from God. 400 years where there were no words from prophets. 400 years where priests went about the duties of worship daily, in and out of the temple. And the promises of God seem to go unfulfilled. 400 years of waiting. 400 years of deafening silence. But you see, while God's people were struggling to believe in his faithfulness, God was in process of fulfilling his promises. And in the Gospel of Luke, we see God break through the deafening silence and he speaks through the angel Gabriel to a priest who is simply going about his duties in the temple, a faithful priest who believed that God was and is who he says he is. And the angel Gabriel speaks to Zechariah and says, do not be afraid. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son 
and you are to give him the name John, and he will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. Many of the people of Israel will he bring back to the Lord their God, and he will go before the Lord. You see, this inbreaking of God into our world yet again, him speaking and breaking through the deafening silence sets into motion a whole series of events because John will be John the Baptist who will make the way for our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, God in the flesh who plunges into the depths of our reality and our messiness, the one through whom we are redeemed and we receive full salvation. So today, we light this first Advent candle. Remembering the words of the prophets remembering that our God is faithful. And with great anticipation, believing that God is big enough to break through those areas of deafening silence in our lives and in our world. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, this year, as we enter into the season of Advent with anticipation of the birth of Christ, help us to believe that you are big enough to break through the areas of deafening silence in our lives and in our world. Make us bold enough to pursue you intensely and courageous enough to sit with you in silence and stillness and trust in your faithfulness as you prepare a place in our hearts to receive you. Lord, we have been reminded well over the past few weeks that we live in a world that is riddled with terror, violence, fear, hatred, and profound injustice. Lord Jesus, we call out to you today with anticipation to break through. We long to see you move. Together we cry out, O come, O come, Emmanuel. With hands and hearts ready to receive, we eagerly anticipate your work in our hearts. God, make us greater conduits of your grace and love and justice in this world. God, prepare our hearts to receive you. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Lord, I, I ask that... Uh as Paul walked into Athens and was greatly distressed at the lostness of the culture, I pray that we would see our world the same way, deeply troubled and concerned. And rather than running away from it, help us to learn to engage and to bring the news of Jesus, not just, not just with our words, but with our lives. And in such a way that some, and we pray many, would believe and embrace this good news. 
And so may you empower your people to do that this Advent season. And may your hand of grace and peace and strength and power now rest on your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for being here. We'll see you next Sunday.